Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and I'm so excited to bring this new episode to you. We're going to be talking about a very special um, nonprofit that's located in New York. And it's known as the Glenwood Center for Regional Food and Farming. It's a nonprofit organization that serves food and farming um, change makers from the New York Hudson Valley and beyond. And they advance local production of food in the region, as well as work in educating a national audience about efforts to regionalize food and agriculture. Our guest today is Kathleen Finley. She's the president of Glenwood and has been a leader in regenerative agriculture um, for most of her career. She's been instrumental in organizing women who also work for environmental progress. Since arriving in Glenwood in 2012, Kathleen has refined the organization's mission and become a national figure in the world of progressive agricultural nonprofits. Previously, she was the director of Harvard Center for Health and the Global Environment, where she developed and shaped programs to educate communities about the correlations between human health and the global environment things that are near and dear uh, to my heart in my own research focus. Um, And so I'm super excited to have you here on the show, Kathleen, and uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. Well, why don't we start with this? Just could you paint us a picture of what it's like, you know, working at Glenwood? What does the farm look like? How many people are there? Yeah, so our center is located about an hour north of Manhattan in the Hudson Valley. We call it the Hudson Highlands. It's a hilly and rocky terrain, not easy agricultural land, um, but a a legacy of agriculture in this region. And the property where we operate was a dairy farm in the 1800s. And then it was bought by a family and they farmed this land, um, but it was served as a sort of a second home and a place for the family to gather for many years. And for the past over 20 years, it's been a nonprofit that serves the area's uh, food and farming professionals. And so if you were to drive up our two mile long dirt driveway, you would um, actually go through protected state forest. We're in the middle of Fonstock State Park park and uh uh you'd go through over some potholes and a stream would be running beside you and then the landscape very typical of farms in this area would sort of reveal into pasture land and these are pastures that have been managed and kept open for for generations and so we um We have our livestock that are roaming around on that pasture. We have cows and goats and sheep and uh, poultry and sometimes pigs. And uh, And then we have some production fields on the flattest part of our operation where we harvest, uh, we we tend about 10 acres of of vegetable land. And the purpose of our farm here is to train new entry farmers. So we have apprentices that live and work on site year round um, who are learning the the career of farming. That's that's great because I think historically people would learn, you know, over generations of, of living as part of a family farm. That's kind of been broken up, right, with industrial ag. 
So right. how many people typically train um, on the farm and what are some of the things that they train in? Yeah, so we typically have around six full-time year-round apprentices and then shorter apprenticeships throughout the year. This year has been a little different because of COVID, um, like everything. So we yeah. have we don't have as many apprentices as we normally do, but um, but we have four of them right now living and working on site. And then we have workshops and classes and courses throughout the year. Again, COVID has affected our farmer training program, but we've been able to do a lot online and um, do some on-site safely. So uh, still really happy that they're here to learn. But yeah, that's the, the what we're trying to do is help um, train a new generation of farmers that didn't necessarily grow up as a part of a farming family, but there's this whole generation of folks who are really driven by environmental stewardship, a desire to be um, part of a robust and healthy food system for their local communities, and those are the folks that we're, that we're training here. That's great. Well, let's talk a bit about regional food and what the ethos is at Glenwood when it comes to regional food. Yeah, so um, I'm sure many of your listeners know the the myriad problems facing a conventional food system in this country. We've um, seen a spotlight being shined on some of those problems, especially in the meat production sector with mm-hmm. COVID affecting these very few nodes that we have in this very efficient but centralized homogenous food system. And so our vision is a much more decentralized food system where there are many small and mid-sized farms that are producing food for their communities in a way that is not as extractive to the environment and really amplifies human health and economic health in their region. So we're working on that in the Hudson Valley. Um, we have some advantages, advantages, advantage. We have some advantages in terms of um, where we are, a legacy of farming, a proximity to a very hungry New York City uh, population, and um, a, a growing interest in a healthier food system. But that work is being replicated all over the country, and we're part of that national effort as well. It's amazing. Well, and I know that one of your passions is how food relates to human health. And um, maybe we could explore that a bit. What is the difference between food sourced through industrial ag chains that can be shipped sometimes across the globe versus, you know, regionally um, provided foods? Yeah, I mean, there's some obvious um, health advantages for sourcing your food locally. The amount of transportation, which you just mentioned, you know, often means that a conventional crop would be picked unripe or not at its nutritious peak when it's easier to ship long distances, the time from harvest to plate affects nutrition. Um, Then there's sort of the commodification of food that 
cuts down the diversity of fruits and vegetables we might be exposed to. So if we're, um, even if we're meeting some of the standards around how many servings of fruits and vegetables, if we're only relying on broccoli, commodity grown broccoli for that, we're just getting what broccoli can give us, not the whole spectrum of what is produced locally. So, um, so those are just some easy ways that a conventional food system doesn't benefit human health as much as our local system. And the health benefits, especially if you subscribe to a farm through community supported agriculture or CSA are really through the roof for the eater. Um, so you're getting that wonderful diversity as the season evolves. Of a, of a nutrient profile and um, your food is really getting to you the day or the day after it's been harvested. Um, and so you're just getting peak, peak healthy food. And, and we see the health effects of that as being pretty positive. Yeah, I, I love that, the, this idea of eating through the seasons. I think that's something that we've really lost touch with because we're so used to going to the grocery store and there's always tomatoes in stock. There's always asparagus in stock <laughs> and all these other um, vegetables, which on one hand is, it's nice, but you know, we're missing out on all those other seasonal vegetables that would be grown um, locally. Yeah. 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 We, and it's also, there's something that isn't directly human health, but it's about being tied to your place mm-hmm. and um, a sense of, of connection to how your food is is produced and where your food is produced. So we we actually challenged ourselves at dinner last night to try and figure out every everything that went into our meal if we could identify where it came from. And like the butter, we couldn't. We have no idea where the the cows were that provided that butter that we were eating last night. But that was an exception. Otherwise, the meal we could actually kind of figure it out. But that's that's partly human health but that's partly like how you want to relate to where the food where your food is coming from and how knowledgeable you are about the system that presents that to you you know two or three times a day that's great well and i know that in a lot of regions you have these um these food festivals that are centered around a specific crop i grew up in south florida and so in my hometown we had a annual watermelon festival you had the watermelon beauty pageant. You had, you know, you had the watermelon seed spinning contest. You had the, you know, the kind of fair-like festival that went on, and like, you know, the watermelon eating contest. And it was just celebrating everything watermelon, and everyone wear watermelon shirts. And I know that there are festivals like this all over the country where yeah. certain crops are celebrated. Yeah, and- it's so funny you mentioned that because last night we were eating asparagus. So asparagus is one, um, is a really interesting story. And there's a documentary called Asparagus, a stockumentary that (laughs) highlights a town in Michigan that is like the asparagus capital of the United States. Mm -hmm. And what happened in the 80s is there was a a policy that made Peruvian asparagus preferential economically as as a, um, in hopes that it would, decrease the opium production in Peru. So it was like a war on drugs policy to bring Peruvian asparagus into the United States 
which threatened this town in Michigan and their whole identity built around asparagus, beauty pageant, the floats, the mm -hmm. festival, the parade. the parade. I mean, yeah. it's a wonderful, wonderful documentary celebrating what, you know, those towns connection to specific crops, but also the complicated policies, international policies that affect where our food comes from. Um, so I, I encourage, it's an old documentary, but you can get it on YouTube. It's a great film. That's um, great. Yeah, really fun. And that's, you know, the, the idea of eating regionally doesn't, it doesn't, like, I'm not about to give up coffee, for example. I would like to know how my coffee is produced and where it's made and ideally who's making it. But, um, you know, sometimes people assume that I have a very purist or that these this movement has a purist uh, mission. And I think that some crops um, we can highlight and highlight and celebrate the place and, and the way that they're made where they are while still, you know, supporting farmers in our region. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think you can do a lot of good for your own health with these kind of simple solutions and not have the pressure that it has to be exactly perfect, right? And the, the same thing is, you know, when I think about just eating more vegetable produce in general, it's, you know, we're, we're not vegetarians in my household. We're definitely meat consumers. But, you know, we, we do work to try and incorporate more and more vegetables into our diet um, and local vegetables when possible. What kind of things are growing right now at the Hudson Valley Farm? Like, what are, what are yeah. some of your major summer crops? Yeah. Um, well, the lettuces are fantastic right now. There's all kinds of spinach and leafy greens. There's tatsoi and bok choy. Um, uh, let's see. The cabbage is happening still. There's wonderful garlic scapes right now um, that people are enjoying. Um there's cucumbers have just started. Um, squash is kind of starting now. So, it, you know, and they, a ton, a, a plenty. That's said. awesome. Yeah. We've, um, I've got a little garden. It's a kind of our, our coronavirus garden. This is an unusual summer for me because I'm usually off in the field somewhere international and like hanging off of a mountain collecting wild plants. So this is the, the first time I've been able to really stay home and have a, a full summer garden. And we've had so many cucumbers. You know, there's always this kind of fun challenge of how can you use, you know, what you have at the moment. And we've been making pickles left and right. And right. Uh, on the fourth, I actually came up with a little uh, blender recipe where I peeled the cucumbers, threw them in the blender with some fresh basil and fresh mint from the garden and a little bit of lemonade. Blended that all up and, you know, a couple splashes of vodka made it really tasty. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a vichyssoise cocktail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, you can eat your vegetables in many, many different ways. <laughs> Absolutely. So, let's go over um, more about CSAs and, in general, how how does the how do CSAs work, and how do people across the country get involved with CSAs? Um, and yeah, and how does Glenwood does Glenwood also participate in a CSA? Yeah, so we distribute our vegetables through CSA. Um, and so CSA basically means, it stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And it's a method where the customer pays the farmer up front, typically in the winter. 
so that then the farmer has the capital they need to buy their seeds and their equipment. And they know it's a great business model, especially for new entry farmers, because it's a pretty simple P&L. You know, you can kind of know what you have and know how to spend it. And then the customer takes their share of the harvest. Typically, that's once a week. Um, so whatever is being grown, you have, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. The reason um, that CSA is so healthy, again, is that spectrum of, you know, moving throughout the year. And then just as you said, you're sort of you got you you have the food you got to use it so yeah. you're gonna figure out ways to like deal with that bok choy whether or not you've you've had a ton of experience with bok choy um so some of the studies are pretty amazing in terms of tracking medical expenses after just six months of being on a csa so if you were had any uh preconditions in terms of uh, blood pressure or diabetes, you you can save hundreds of dollars in medical expenses after just a season of being on a CSA. So it's this wonderful, um, it's a, a, a wonderful health tactic. And what is also great about it is I think it's a, it's a step beyond, you know, food is medicine. I think that there is a growing awareness that you know, you are what you eat, and that's pretty straightforward. Um, but a lot of that advice is agnostic of where that food comes from. But by supporting a local farm, you really get the most nutritious, healthiest food, and you're kind of helping to uh, create a vision for the landscape of your region that is uh, robust and vital and healthy, both economically and environmentally. Yeah, that's, that's such a great point, both on the cultural end and, and kind of supporting local economies, but also on the, on the chemistry end. I mean, um, plants, their, their chemistry changes from points of immaturity versus maturity. And you can see this in a lot of crops when they're harvested early, so they don't bruise during shipment. They just don't taste the same as a fully ripened, you know, or fully ready to harvest kind of vegetable or fruit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's hard for me to um, when I taste store-bought or something that's been shipped a long time, it's just, it doesn't have the flavor too. So there's something very sensorial about eating this way. It tastes yeah. really good. And that's, um, that's part of it. Yeah. Well, it's like I tell my students, it's really, you're, you're tasting the chemistry of your food and it's the chemistry of the food that confers the pharmacological properties of that food. And that's where the food medicine continuum really comes into play. Yeah. yeah to unite. I just signed up. You would like this, Cassie. I signed up for um, a CSA that's wild harvested. So it's Ooh. a forager that's who that, you know, because the restaurants have not been operating, um, some, some restaurants in the city had their own foragers that would harvest wild crops. And so they pivoted and you can now subscribe to their, to their so harvest. Cool. Yeah. Foraging are some of my favorite people. I don't know what I'm, we haven't got my box yet, so I'll, I'll keep you posted. It's amazing. Yeah. You're probably going to get some lovely, like, little tart uh, greens, and I'm sure some mushrooms, and oh, yeah. 
I think of everybody, like foragers and fermenters are like my favorite people. <laughs> so, <laughs> just just uh, so much cool knowledge. It's, it's so much fun to go out with them too in the field to learn about um, different edible um, plants and, and fungi in the wild. It's cool. So for, for, for future listeners, I mean, we might have some of the audience that are intrigued by this idea of going into the, the profession of being a farmer, which can be a big leap, I think, for someone that maybe grows up in the city and has never worked on a farm and just doesn't have that, that traditional knowledge that's been passed down from generation to generation. What are some of the biggest challenges that people face and how does Glenwood address those in your, in your apprenticeship programs? Yeah, so, um, I mean, certainly getting the knowledge of how to farm is one kind of big barrier. Um, land access is another, and um, capitalization in general, like starting a business. Um, that That is a barrier for lots of industries, but farming is no exception. So our training here is pretty rigorous. We tend to be an advanced apprenticeship, meaning you've already kind of gone through some training and asked yourself the question, do I want to be a professional farmer mm-hmm. at the time you get here? But we work in collaboration with lots of efforts, some based in New York City that do urban farming as, and, a, and an introductory sort of coursework that introduces the concept of farming to folks. Um, lots of other apprenticeships that tend to be more beginning level that, again, kind of give someone a taste of what it would be like to be a farmer yeah. so they can make those decisions. By the time they come to Glenwood, they're pretty, they're like on their way to starting a farm. Um, and so we've been able to provide the coursework, living and working it. The farm is like the best way to learn. We have mentors, fabulous people on my staff. Um, who have years and years of farming knowledge. And we really focus on the business side as those uh, apprentices progress. And then we started a farm business incubator program that helps farms in their first five years of launching, basically. So in some cases, that helps them identify land, make sure that the land is suitable for their business plan, We work with land trusts in the area who have easements on properties that make it more affordable for first-time landowners. Um, We sometimes know private landowners that are willing to have farms take place on their land for a reasonable rate or a long-term lease. Okay. Mm -hmm. So lots of different ways to address land access. It's getting a little bit easier, still challenging. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for capitalization. So getting that, you know, startup capital, um, farm loans are getting more, are getting a little bit easier for these new entry farmers, especially if they've been through a program like Linwood's. Um, so we're, we're really trying to help set up farms for success. And then, and then we network those farmers like through COVID it's been incredible because we've been able to, you know, directly help our network of farmers pretty quickly and swiftly everything from business pivots that have needed to happen to safety protocols. How do you farm safely in COVID? Um, how do you, how do you run a market? Is it okay to go to the farmer's market? You know, all of those questions we've been able to 
help our, our network of farmers, hundreds of farmers in the Hudson Valley pretty swiftly. That's amazing. What a, what a huge difference it's, I'm, I'm sure it's making on, on the region. Um, and those are, those are some really big points to think about also is the expense of farming. I mean, in my simplified like vision, it's like, okay, you go and you plant this, this field, but then you have to think about the, the equipment that you need. And some of this equipment, like, I don't know how much a tractor costs these days, but I'm guessing it's probably more than a car cost. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. the cost and access to land, I'm sure is very pricey as well. And so you go into this massive state of debt, perhaps, initially um, yeah. unless you can your other ways yeah yeah no, it's that's not a, starting any business you know mm-hmm. it is really you have to have a really solid plan know what your investments needed are how are you going to make that investment what is your profit projection um so all of that and um yeah helping i think helping people understand that that, that farming is a business um, and those, they're all there. You have to be an entrepreneur to be a farmer these days. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So through this journey, um, cause I know you have a background in policy as well as what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned so far? Um, or do you have any big pieces of wisdom you would confer, um, to both to potential farmers or, or people that are just interested in, in connecting more with local farms? Sure. I mean, I certainly would advocate for everyone to find out where their local farms are. And you had asked me earlier, there's um, in New York, you could go to HudsonValleyCSA.org to find a CSA. Um, and nationally, there's you, you could probably put, you know, your county and CSAs and Google and, and you'll get the information about your local CSA. But there's also something called localharvest.org. That's a national database of um, of where how you can support local farms, and so that's you know supporting local farms I think is paramount in terms of policy. We, um, you know, we are advocating for resources that make starting those farm businesses locally easier. So whether that's you know, money for training farms or for being t- able to access capital to buy land. All, there's a whole host of resources that we can make available at a state and federal level. And then recently we've been doing a lot of work with the hunger relief organizations in the Hudson Valley. And that um, that is a whole other area where policy-wise we could do a lot more to make sure that there's more fresh food being given to our communities in need and that that fresh food is coming from the types of farms that we work with here in the Hudson Valley. Um, And that would take some pretty strong policy measures, some funding from the state and the federal government that goes directly to those farms to be able to produce food for hunger relief organizations. Yeah, I, I think the movement of food is always a challenge, right, to get it to the right people. I was so dismayed earlier on in the COVID um, uh, like pandemic when there were all these news reports in Florida of farmers just dumping their produce because they didn't have a, you know, the supply chain was so disrupted and they were just rotting in the fields. I'm like, my gosh, there has to be 
a better way to get this to people in need, especially in a time of crisis. Um, yeah. 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 And that is, I mean, that's the, a direct outcome of a, of this centralized conventional food system, right? So if you have a more decentralized networked resilient system, like we're building here in the Hudson Valley, you know, none of my farmers had food to spare, you know, none of the farmers that we work with, that would be like an inconceivable because they know how to get it to the people in need through, you know, through their networks and through yeah. um, their connections. So it's these, um, you know, these large scale conventional models that rely on just a very few specific nodes for those transfers. And that's what we're trying to, we're trying to build an alternative to that. That's great. Yeah. Well, and um, where can people find more information about Glenwood? Yeah, glenwood.org. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Kathleen. This is a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I, I'll have to see if I can come up and visit someday next time I'm up in, in, uh, in the Hudson Valley area. I bet it'd be a beautiful farm to visit. <laughs> yeah, please do. We'd love to have you. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded on Skype from home during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can subscribe to the show on any major podcasting platform or listen directly on our website at foodiepharmacology.com. Please take a moment to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Every rating score helps us raise visibility of the show. And thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time. Great.